Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great. Thanks, Margaret, very much. So we're in uh, 1 Peter. He's writing to scattered Christians to encourage them and instruct them as opposition and persecution intensified across the uh, empire. Uh, We'll be in 1 Peter for the next three Sundays, then in our summer Sunday series taking us through uh, August, and uh, we'll pick up some of the rest of 1 Peter in uh, the autumn. They are outsiders, no doubt about it. Increasingly, the Christian church, the young Christian church, was being marginalized, ostracized. They find themselves living behind enemy lines. Should they hide away? No. Should they blend in? No. The call of 1 Peter, the call of Peter in his letter called 1 Peter, is that they're called to stand up, to stand out, to embrace their difference. Be holy, be different, be other as I am holy, says the Lord. And all that was last time, and you can catch up with that on uh, the podcast wherever you find them. Did you know that our podcasts are on Spotify now? I knew you'd be impressed with that. What Spotify, I hear you say. It's a little kid with acne. Here we go. Bible's open. I'd encourage you to bring your own Bible. So the Bible that you use in the week in your own devotion is the one that we open together while we're uh, here. And... uh, uh, if you haven't got um, a Bible with you, grab the, one of the ones in the pew. If you don't have a Bible, then take the one that's in the pew home with you as you go. Uh, we'd be glad for you uh, to take it. We're going to look at verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. We will get back to these earlier verses, but let's kick things off in verse 4. Um, page number perhaps might be helpful if people are still looking for it. What's the page number, guys? One, two, one, eight. Great. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. So as you come to him, the living stone, verse 4, a chosen and precious cornerstone, verse 6. First word, cornerstone. First word, cornerstone. As you come to the him, the living stone, verse 4, described in verse 6 as the cornerstone. Peter is describing Jesus as the living stone. 
He's describing Jesus as the cornerstone. Pew, 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 pew. That's what would have gone off in the mind of those first reading this. All kinds of ideas would suddenly have exploded in their minds like a little firework. And we'll draw some of those out in a minute to understand why. But, but, but just hang with the phrase for a minute. This is such a brilliant phrase. A living stone. You can't get more dead than a stone. People talk to insult somebody or to reflect the deadness of their heart. They have a heart of stone. We use the idea of something that's stone to be as lifeless as you can possibly be. Like, I guess, a corpse in a Palestinian tomb, for example. See what I did there? Or something in your life that's as dead and lifeless. Jesus is the living Stone. He is the one that can make that which is utterly, conclusively, totally dead live. Isn't that amazing? He's the living stone. Doesn't matter how dead your particular dead thing is, Jesus makes it alive. He's the living stone. So, what's the idea of this stone all about? Why was it going pew, pew, pew? in people's minds as they first read it. Well, the first idea is this, and it comes from Isaiah, and Peter quotes Isaiah just to help us in case we needed reminding. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There was this growing longing in the Old Testament, especially during the time of exile, that God would rebuild the temple. And it wasn't that the temple itself was of ultimate significance, but it was what the temple represented and stood for. The temple was the place where God would dwell. In exile, they found themselves outside of God's land and, in a sense, outside or away from God's presence because the temple was where God came with his gracious presence. And so there was this longing for the temple to be rebuilt, for the presence of God to return to his people. And so um, there's this longing in Isaiah that there would be one day a cornerstone. A cornerstone was like the foundation stone that would go where in the building? The corner, very sharp, well done. Cornerstone, and the reason it was so important is that the weight of the building would be on the cornerstone and it would direct the direction both vertically and horizontally of the building. If the cornerstone was not solid and firm, you would have a wonky building that would be liable for collapse. So they were longing for this cornerstone, this foundation stone, as the first step of the rebuilding of the temple where the presence of God would dwell. But notice what it says. It's really weird. Cornerstone and the one who trusts in him. Have you ever trusted in a stone that's called a him? So is it a stone that's being placed or a person that's being placed. When he means stone, does he mean stone or does he really mean a person who's called a stone? Hold that thought for a minute. A stone that will be solid, that will build something, 
in which God's presence will dwell. Hmm, can you see what's going on? You're already making some connections? You ready for your lunch? Now, that's one thought, okay? So there's this stone that's the beginnings of a new thing that will hold, embody, somehow, God's presence. It's a stone, and we're invited to trust him. Now, in Hebrew, there's a play on words between the word stone and the word son. Jesus uses it in one of his parables, and we'll get to that in a moment. A play on words a bit like this. The sun shines on us today. What am I saying? Which, absolutely, I'm saying that the sun shines on us, S-U-N. I could be saying the sun S-O-N shines on us. And in some ways, when I talk about the sun shining on us, it's a nod and a wink to the S-O-N shining on us. And when we go out into a normal day and the sun shines on us, it's a nod and a wink the other way that the S-O-N shines, the sun of the world shines on us. So there's this play on words in Hebrew between a stone, the word for stone, and the word for sun. You can look it up, and if you want to Google it, um, uh, Tom Wright talks a lot about it, and you'll like him. Now, so there's a story in the New Testament that Jesus tells about the owner of a vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard goes away, and he leaves the tenants in charge of the vineyard, but they don't look after the vineyard very well, and he sends some people to tell them they need to get their act together and look after the vineyard properly. Do you know that one? And the final person that he sends is who? Son. So it's a story, what about? It's a story about the son coming to the vineyard in order to put things right or to sort things out. It's the story about a son. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. This is Mark chapter 12, if you're interested. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Who's the son? Who are they talking about? Jesus. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner do of the vineyard? He will come and kill those tenants and give the owner. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? Dot, dot, dot. So it's a parallel about the sun, but the punchline of the parable is about a stone. Have you noticed that? Isn't that weird? The whole story is about a sun, and Jesus says the punchline is the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. He's marvelous in our eyes. It's a play on words between the word sun and stone because there was not, not just theologically through the scriptures, but linguistically in the Hebrew language, that ability to play on those two words. He's blowing their minds. Are you talking about a sun or, or a stone? And, and the stone will be the beginning of the temple, but actually, will it be a stone or will it actually be the sun that will build the temple? And uh, they're wondering what that's all about, which is the passage from the Psalms that Peter is quoting here. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a new temple, a new place that will house the presence of God built by Jesus, the true cornerstone. You with me so far? If you're going to build a temple, you need more stones than the cornerstone. Are you with me? It's very rare to look at a building and go, those foundations look amazing. That's all we need. 
In fact, this building, just to help you feel comfortable, has no foundations at all. <clears throat> they bought this church from Ikea. And they built it, flat pack Baptist church. Looks like most other Baptist churches in the country. Got it from mile 39 and they placed it on the ground here. And it's been here ever since. The foundation of the temple, the cornerstone, is Jesus. But if you're going to build a temple, if you're going to build a place where the presence of God dwells, you're going to need a lot more stones or sons. See what I did there? Thank you, Helen. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, see that bit? You also, like living stones, you are the dead stones that have come alive. You are the living stones, just like Jesus was the living stone, the dead one that was alive. So we are living stones, the dead people now alive, being built into something. Who are the living stones? We are the living stones. We are being built into something with Jesus That will embody the presence of God. Let me just say that again very slowly. We, you and I, are being built into something where Jesus is the cornerstone that will embody the presence of God. Yes, mate. That's pretty cool. Tell your neighbor how excited you are about it. And if you're not excited about it, ask yourself why. You see what Peter is doing here? You are an outsider. He's made that clear. You're strangers and aliens. You're kind of weird to the world. You're pushed to the margins. It's like you're irrelevant. It's like you don't know where you fit anymore. That's the earthly perspective. But the heavenly perspective is this. With Jesus as the firm foundation, he is building living stones. That is, those things that were once dead, those people that were once dead, now alive, building them into a temple that will inhabit the presence that will in which the presence of God can live. From the heavenly perspective, we're not just outsiders, we're outliers. We're way outside the normal range of things. I mean, who wanders into work tomorrow and goes, do you know what, I'm part of this kingdom building that will inhabit and fill, the presence of God will fill and inhabit. And look how he describes it. What, what would it be that God is building in which his presence would dwell? I guess naturally I might think the thing that God is building in which his presence would dwell might be a big Billy Graham crusade. How many of you came to faith in a Billy Graham crusade? Nobody here. That's really unusual. A few of you did. Yeah, a few people floating about. Because in those moments we sense the presence of God. We, we might think, well, if God's building something where his presence would be particularly known and manifest, it might be a, a meeting, a gathering like this, because we've known and felt the presence of God here, haven't we? 
And so we naturally think about those places and those spaces. But actually, he says something quite different. As you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual, literally, household. You are being built into a little community where the presence of God will live. You don't need guitars and drums and keyboard and sax and stuff. You don't need a building and pews and stuff. All you need is a house. And if you haven't got a house, you don't even need that because the word is household. It's not about the building, but about the network of relationships. It's just you and somebody else. And in that household... And in the, the, the whole household thing was not just about blood relatives. It was about people that you were journeying and interrelated to in your lives. In that space, Peter says, the presence of God is being built. Something that all of us can do. Something that every one of us can be a part of. And it was these small Networks, these small households that were causing the gospel to spread all over the empire until about 300 AD when they made Christianity official and they turned it into big gatherings like this and the whole thing slowed down in a way that perhaps they never could have anticipated. The the picture that Peter gives here to these Christians who are feeling that they're on the edge, marginalized, pushed to the edges of society. He says, you and your small group of people gathering in a home, in a cafe, in a locality, in a neighborhood, wherever it is, that's the place where God is building and sending his presence. You're an outlier. You embody something totally Different, something beyond the normal range of things. And and that's our heart, isn't it? That we would release in our whole community, communities where the presence of God can be made known wherever they are and around whomever they gather. That's what God is doing with us in households, in communities all over our town. And one of the things that I was most struck by when we gathered our community leaders over these last few weeks, lovely evenings, and so grateful to them for the way they facilitate so much of the life of our church. If you take our communities out of the life of our churches, not a lot of story to tell of what God is doing. A fantastic uh, testimony to God's faithfulness, the way that they uh, serve and, and lead us. Uh, and we were looking at that passage where Jesus sends out the 72 to go to a household, to, to stay in a household, and to bring the kingdom of God into that household. And they come back with what? With great joy, it says. They come back with great joy because they say, even, it's just amazing, this whole thing works. Even the demons obey us. You imagine what kind of service that would have been on that Sunday when they all came back with great joy. Sometimes we've turned the tables and we've come here to get some joy, to take it into the week in the hope that it won't run out by Saturday evening. 
Do you know, it's good if we meet together on a Monday, but by Saturday lunchtime, the joys are right out the way on the bottom. But the joy is found in this kind of gathering of people where the Spirit of God, where God's presence is dwelling, the new temple. We're being built into something with Jesus, where the presence of God will dwell. Stones need proximity, don't they? To be anything. They need to get close together. And that perhaps makes sense of verse 1 for us. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. These, the, these are all relational things, aren't they? You notice that? They're all relational sins. They're all relational struggles. They're all relational difficulties. It's all about how I relate to someone else. I can't let malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander get in the way because if it gets in the way, then the stones won't be close enough to create anything. So Jesus builds households. He built a household himself, bringing the most unlikely people together. As a single man, he created what he called of it an oikos, a household. This is my family. This is what I'm building, he said. And it, it was like, it wasn't just like getting the two people vying for prime minister and saying, let's love one another and journey together. It wasn't just like saying, let's get the leader of the opposition and whoever might be the prime minister together. They were people that were poles apart, socially, economically. Jesus called those disciples together and said, hey, we're going to create something brand new here in which, a crucible, in which the presence of God will dwell. It was a remarkable thing. And, and when he says to them at the end, he says, by your love, people will know you're my disciples. It wasn't by your love, oh, they'll sit next to each other in a church service. It wasn't by your, by, by your love, oh, well, I'll have a united service once in a while and put up with some people that are different. This was a close bond of people that in the human order of things could never be close to one another. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Dead stones coming alive. When people see that, when people see the sacrifice, the commitment, the love of people who would in other ways be diametrically opposed, living together as family, then the presence of God gets magnificently made known. Have we got something to offer the world? You bet we have. Okay, he was the temple, the cornerstone, needs other stones, that's you and me. And, and um, we're going to run out of time, but the, 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 don't forget the whole progression thing. Way back in the Old Testament, where, where was the presence of God found? Tabernacle at one point, before the tabernacle? Garden of Eden was perfectly there, okay? Then we lost the presence of God. Uh, and, and one of the first major moments of kind of it was a, was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So somehow there was this visible representation of the presence of God. People weren't allowed to see God or be in his presence. Moses uh, very uniquely went up into the presence of God on, on Mount Sinai. And that became a very... Uh, then the presence of God came into the, the ark... Uh, which was a very portable thing. God's presence kind of moved with them. Uh, and then it was established in the, in the temple, bricks and mortar. 
And then most wonderfully, in the fullness of time, the presence of God came in Jesus. Gets centered right down in the person of Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? The cornerstone that creates a new temple built not of bricks and mortar, but of living stones in which the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, will now dwell a guarantee of all that is to come in you and me, living stones. We are the embodiment of the presence of God. And you can't do it by yourself. The Bible very rarely talks about, we go, where's Jesus? He's in my heart. Now, kind of Jesus is in our hearts, and we talk about that we take Jesus with us when we go, but that's our super individualistic Western culture. The Bible doesn't talk about it like that. The Bible talks about the presence of Jesus being as we relate and as we gather and as we build family together. That's the new temple. That's where the presence of God dwells. And that shouldn't surprise us, because way back, even before the Garden of Eden, the presence of God was not in one person, but in a community of people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just to complete the whole journey all the way through, there will be a new day when there will be a new Garden of Eden, a new heaven and a new earth, and God's presence will what? Will will fill the whole thing. There'll be no need for the the sun. And we're in this bit. We're in this bit as living stones being built into something. Where are you being built? And who with? And who with? Where are you being built? And who with? Because we have this incredible honor in this world that's dark and lost and broken to be crucibles in which the presence of God is known. Just as an aside, have you noticed that in verse 5 you've got up in and out? Just because it's everywhere. Three primary relationships connecting with each other connecting with God, and uh, reaching out. So, God is building households. And that's what, that's, what if, uh, that's what Peter is writing to these scattered households all over the empire. And he says, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of the fact. You might feel small and on your own, but don't lose sight of the fact that you embody the presence of God, and this is happening all over the known world. Second word, chosen. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Chosen and precious. Think about that for a moment, about Jesus, how chosen and precious Jesus is to God the Father. That intimate, deep sense of attachment when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Let's feel the weight of that for a moment. That that sense of Jesus is uniquely chosen and supremely precious. If Jesus was the living stone, and we too are now living stones, if Jesus was chosen and precious, what are we now? Should we just do that again? If Jesus is the living stone, and we are now living stones, if Jesus is also chosen and precious, what are we now? You're way ahead of me. Gosh, didn't know how you got there so quick. 
We, what did you just say? We are chosen and precious. So, so take some of those thoughts, feelings, ideas about the way God the Father relates to Jesus the Son and begin to apply them to us, to you. Verse 7 literally says, the honor uh, is now, no, is that the right one? Here we go, let's see if we can find it. That's it, this same honor This preciousness, effectively, it says, is yours. You are God's beloved. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Look what it says. You also, that's you as well. Not just Jesus. Jesus has brought us into everything that's been true of him. The dead stone, now alive. The dead people, now alive. The chosen and precious one, now extended to us. We are those chosen and precious ones. There's this great moment at at Jesus' baptism when Jesus' identity is sealed. When God the Father says, uh, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That identity that was bestowed on Jesus, is now ours. The Father speaks those words over our lives. We are chosen and precious in his sight. And it doesn't matter where you go in the Bible to find those verses about um, love and intimacy and the uniqueness of relationship in God, you can take that and, and extrapolate that out to ourselves. What's that song? He brought me to his banqueting table from the Song of Songs. His banner over me is... His banner is love. Don't know why I did that. At Jesus' baptism, he heard the voice and he felt the touch. The Holy Spirit came upon him. I wonder what you need today to really know that you're chosen and precious. Do you need to hear the voice today? Or do you need to feel the touch? Because what's true of Jesus is becoming true for us. The cornerstone, the living stone, we also, like living stones, are being built into. In the same way that Jesus himself embodied the presence of God, we are being built into this new temple and we ourselves will embody the presence of God uh, together. Why is all this so important? Because they needed to know when the whole world was against them, they needed to know that the God of the universe had chosen them and loved them. And they weren't just outsiders. They were outliers. They were communities filled with his presence, given a royal task, a unique purpose in the world. So they should and could stand up and speak out. And that's maybe why Chapter 1 ends with verse 24, just that reminder that all the people that uh, make such a lot of noise and, uh, um, uh, I don't know where it is now, I've lost it on you. Um, Maybe I haven't even got it on you. Anyway, you can see it there, can't you, at the end of of, uh, uh, 
uh, chapter 1, verse 24, all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word, this word of the Lord, this reality of who we are endures forever. Lastly, final word, very quickly, is this one. Is connection. Is connection. The priests, uh, I mean, it was mind-blowing for these early Christians to, to think of themselves as priests. Because the priests were the super special ones. The priests enabled ordinary folk to connect with God. The priests were the fixers. The priests were those who made access possible. The priests were the doorway into God's presence. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. These communities that were all over the known world, that were in the eyes of Peter, the new temple, the new living stones in which the presence of God would dwell, were to be doorways and gateways to help people enter God's presence. That you may declare the praises, verse 9, of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's not so much preaching in mind there. Peter would have used a different verse. It's more about declaring by your word and your works, declaring by your life the truth of all that you are living. As we live out, look at verse 12, live such good lives as we live this new life out, built like living stones, built into households that inhabit and display the glory of God. As we live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Notice that they will glorify God on the day he visits. It implies that between now when the people are being disappointed and disillusioned because they're small little groups and they can't see anything happening, by the time God visits, whenever that is, those people will be ready to welcome him. In other words, they will have become believers. It's a picture of hope and promise. That as we live out the purpose of God, as we allow him to build us into these new temples, the presence of God will be made known. Not just to us, but those all around. No time to think about the way that this parallels with the people of Israel. By the time you get to the end of these verses, what Peter is saying, everything that was once true of Israel is now true of you in your little household community. Everything that was once true of Israel is now true of you and your little household uh, community. And it was an amazing fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham way back and said, look, I'm going to bless you, God said to Abraham, and you will be a blessing to all the nations, to all the nations. So the light that we shine is not just a little tiny light in our own little tiny corner, but it is part of a mighty flame that's ablaze. Thank you, Lord, that you make living stones. That lives that were dead now live. Thank you that you are building something with us. That Jesus is the cornerstone, but without us, nothing is getting built. 
Thank you for the glorious invitation to be part of your building, your temple building, built into spiritual households where your presence dwells and where your presence is made known. Thank you, Lord. And every time I think I'm not sure I can be part, every time I think I'm not sure how I can be involved, every time I lack confidence, I'm reminded that I'm chosen and I'm precious. I'm chosen. There's a a place for me. And and not just any old place. I'm precious. A, A place that matters for me. For us. For all of us. And so we put our faith in Christ all over again. In Jesus' name. Let's sing together.